Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there. Welcome to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders around the US to discover their secret behind the scenes, share with you some interesting new locations, and find out the new flavors and ingredients they are experimenting with. If you are a first-time listener, welcome to the show. Last week was the part two of a recording that I've done with three chefs in Austin. Kevin Fink from MRN Rye, Chef Andre Natera from the Fairmont Hotel, and Fiori Tedesco from the restaurant Locadoro. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast as you do not want to miss great episodes that are coming soon. Today, I have two guests on the show. They are couple in life and couple in the kitchen. Chefs Sayet and Laura Azilmaz from the Eastern Mediterranean restaurant Noosh in San Francisco. We talk about what it is to be a couple in life and in the kitchen. And obviously, we cover the richness of the food culture from the past Ottoman Empire. You can access the show notes at flavorsunknown.com and find the episode on the episode page. A little warning, you know, about this recording. I really apologize in advance, you know, for uh, the sound of a door that is opening and closing at two or three different times in, in the show. It is with great pleasure that I welcome now both chefs on the show. Hi, I am really excited to have you both, you know, on the show. So welcome to Flavors Unknown. I am very pleased to have Sayat and Laura from uh, Noosh, a restaurant in San Francisco. Hello, hello. We're excellent. Hi, uh, we are super excited to be part of the show. Thank you so much for thinking of us. You are a couple in life and in the kitchen. So I'm curious, how is it to be partner as a married couple and as well sharing, you know, a kitchen? It's it's really one of the most rewarding aspects of cooking at all at this point. We've been together for five years and ever since we met, you know, we've always connected intensely, professionally and emotionally. And uh, it's just been a tremendous journey to do everything with Laura. And of course, there is always compromise involved. We basically make sure that whatever the other person cares about, we don't interfere with too much. And if I care that some things are, desserts are not as sweet as some other chefs do, Laura lets me be, that kind of thing. So there's always a compromise here and there. Laura, what's, what's your point of view? It takes a lot of energy to, on top of that, you know, separate our relationship from the restaurant because, you know, we sleep together, we work together, we do everything together. And uh, at the end of the day, whenever we have to solve an issue, we become business partners. So I'll say most of the times we are business partners. And at the, you know, when we go home, it's really hard to separate. But I think we are getting there. We're not 
experts doing this. I think we're in the process of finding the right balance. And I think it will be hopefully anytime soon. So how do you find this, um, you know, as you just mentioned, this balance between, you know, the professional aspects and, and, and the private aspects? You know, do you have any tips? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we try to separate completely from food. It's, it's very hard for us to separate from something that you're very passionate about because we both love food. And whenever we have a, a second, you know, it's very interesting to see that we get excited about the same, the same ingredients, the same restaurants. I think finding the channels like being with family and being with friends has been the best way for the two of us. I'm guessing everything is good when, you know, everything goes well at the restaurant, but when there is some difficult moments. So how, how do you keep the cool? Yeah, our crisis management toolbox is ever expanding. I think we both <laughs> are, uh, you know, very good at some things and one of us is, if one of us is better at one other something, that's the person who sol goes and solves that particular problem. But at the end of the day, we've found that de-escalation uh, in any situation is our best tool. And therefore, we know better not to escalate situations, basically. So sure. it's just a lot less energy intensive. If we solve things calmly and we basically learned it the hard way, if you will, and we handle things quite effectively at this point. Sayed, so you are Armenian from Turkey and, and Laura, you are from Mexico. So how are you merging these two uh, cultures, like the Eastern Mediterranean and, and the Mexican culture? And, and especially interesting is how do you translate this, uh, you know, in your way of cooking? You know, it's been very interesting for the two of us, especially for myself, because, you know, I'm cooking food that's not from my culture. And I have learned to embrace it so much and to emerge myself in the culture in a way that I just take it up as if it was my own culture. This has been a long process. And I, I think I'll, I'll tell you the long story. We started with We stages. We stage for our honeymoon. And along the honeymoon, we basically, you know, found out that nobody was doing anything fun with Middle Eastern cuisine. And we just decided to, to start building our concept based on that, based on exploring the ingredients, based on just, you know, bringing the Middle East or the Eastern Mediterranean to whatever place we chose to stay on. So we chose San Francisco. I don't think we are emerging the two concepts right now or the two cultures. I think what we're doing is I have embraced the culture by itself so much that, you know, I've been so involved with the techniques, with the ingredients. This is something that we want to apply in the future. This is something I, I, I don't want to give up our news or anything, but I think this is something that Possibly in the future, we'll be working on and just working in one concept when, where we emerge, emerge the two cultures. When did you f uh, fell in love with, I'm not talking about science, but I'm talking about <laughs> like the Eastern, Eastern Mediterranean uh, culture and, and food. Is it before you met him? Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, way before I met Sayad. I actually had a, one of my best friends, Turkish, and I met her in culinary school and, you know, seeing Seeing her such a strong woman, you know, and just, it was just, she was just so impressive to see. She was very young when I met her. She was just very passionate. And it was just, I realized it was a culture by itself. And I went on a, a trip 
to Istanbul with my mom and my best friend. And we, I basically fell in love with it. And I told my mom, you know, I'm going to get married with a Turkish guy. And, and that's what I did. Yeah, I know. I'm not kidding. How old were you at that time? So I was about uh, 19 years old when I did it. Oh man. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, and uh, it happened. Well, wow. that's, yeah. that's, that's a very nice story. And that's like pretty much the only thing that I got out of being Turkish too. So you got to realize how lucky I am and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that she had her eyes on my culture and then she found me along the way and I scored. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. That's a great story. As far as the merging of the cultures, uh, the way I look at it is, Laura is not just an amazing cook, but she's also a great businesswoman. So I always look at it as, you know, she's making a compromise by signing up to this other culture that is it's somewhat exotic, but at this point, super familiar. But also she found the opportunity as she identified on our honeymoon trip that, you know, nobody's doing anything fun with Middle Eastern food. And therefore, we're like, let's focus on it. Let's develop it. And, uh, you, you know, let's create something that is unique and powerful and tells a compelling story because, you know, hummus is hummus, but, you know, hummus with a story is a lot more convincing than hummus without a story. So why, why is San Francisco? Because where, where are you based in San Francisco you, yourself? Or no, we, you, uh, we were actually no. living in, uh, in New York. Like I said, we met in culinary school. Say and I met in culinary school. After a couple months of knowing each other, he basically moved in with me. And, mm-hmm. you know, he proposed I, after I, six I months. That. I understood <laughs> that. He was Turkish. So here we go. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was an easy decision was, for the two That was written in your story. <laughs> yes, that's right. Everything happened really fast. And during our honeymoon, we said, okay, we just want to start building our family. We want to go and find the right place for the two of us. We do mm-hmm. not only want to be build our family, but also we want to build our career as a chefs, as and also as a as a business entrepreneurs. We went all the way from New York and we came to San Francisco. Our goal was basically San Francisco, but but also said we said within the two of us, you know, if we find a city that we like along the way, uh, we will stay. We're just okay. gonna go to the city that we feel is the best place for the two of us. And at the end, it was. It was San Francisco. We decided that it was the right place, the right weather, and the right people. So we absolutely love to be here. So can you explain to me uh, and to the listener what uh, Noosh is about? Noosh is a cohesive Eastern Mediterranean concept that elevates the simplest foods from uh, the region into a story that basically it resonates with the Californian culture. By that, I mean, you know, it's not just a Middle Eastern restaurant, but it's a Middle Eastern restaurant with a, excuse me, Eastern Mediterranean restaurant with an Eastern Mediterranean wine menu, Eastern Mediterranean tea menu, non-alcoholic beverage menu, a hospitality that showcases that understanding of the guest an atmosphere that celebrates it. We have olive trees that put the shade, you know, in the afternoon into our bar. And it's one of the most gorgeous times during the day. Our wide open windows just let the breeze in on a cool day in San Francisco. And it's one of the most amazing feelings. It just feels like you're in the Mediterranean. You know, we named the restaurant after my grandmother, uh, 
we, we care about cultural anchors, something that sort of rests in history and culture in a logical place. And, and Nush is, you know, not just an Armenian and Greek word, but it's also a, a Farsi word that is part of an expression that means cheers. Nushajan is how, how you basically say salud Farsi. And we just get really excited about this, you know, word that has so many cognates in the, uh, in Middle Eastern languages that, you know, everybody can relate to. So one of the things that I would like to add to that is, thinking about the restaurant and thinking about the concept. One of the mottos for me and Sayad has always been, we want to serve food that we want to eat ourselves. And I think this is basically what we're doing. And it was also a challenge for the two of us going into a city where in San Francisco, everything is a little bit expensive. You know, it's, it's, it's not easy to find good food at a good price. And uh, we just basically decided to use our skills as chefs to develop a menu where we could serve like amazing food from the Middle East and offer a really great experience to the community. And, you know, we, we, we came to this point, we came to concept where we are focused on value, we're focused on community, and we are also focused on culture, cultural anchors. So we're very excited about the restaurant. One thing I would like to expand on is the region is a conflicted region. We've expanded the boundaries that existed only after the beginning of the 20th century and created a borderless cuisine that celebrates the whole region. But that also comes with a huge uh, sort of, you know, we're breaking a lot of walls in people's minds. And it means you're serving Hungarian wine with Turkish food. You're putting Moroccan preserved lemons on you know, a lamb kebab uh, and, you know, a Georgian dish is shaped like a Turkish flatbread. People are getting really uh, confused. And I, I think our staff basically untangled all of it in explaining and scripting everything to the guests. And I think that idea of borderless cuisine and the value we bring by expanding it to not just food, but also the wine menu, the cocktail menu, the non-alcoholic beverage menu, and being able to explain these sort of relationships to guests has been the biggest way we've elevated casual Middle Eastern food to a uh, higher level. We have seen like a really Eastern Mediterranean food really being a, a huge trend currently in the U.S., there's been a you know a lot of fast casual restaurants serving Middle Eastern food, Mediterranean food. Uh, it's everywhere. So why do you think food coming from this region of the world resonates you know with the American consumer today? We get very excited about the cuisine by itself, and we get very excited about that we are not touching only the Middle East. We're also touching all the Eastern Mediterranean, and what it means, you know, we're touching parts of. All, all the Caucasus and we're touching all these Middle Eastern countries at the same time. And the cuisine by itself was based on really good and pure ingredients, just like olive oil. Uh, you know, we were very excited that basically more, more than 50% of the menu can be executed for and can be presented to a vegetarian person. So I think people love that. People love place where they can have fresh ingredients, especially in California. And, you know, you're eating good, healthy food, and it's not overwhelming. 
One of the ways I think about it is obviously there was a huge movement with, you know, now this is a passe to talk about, but Chipotle basically was a trailblazing organization and it started with Mexican food. And obviously all the entrepreneurs, it took them five, six years to get their ducks in a row, but all the entrepreneurs were like, oh, let's do it with Middle Eastern food. You know, why not? Uh, so there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that have kind of broken the code to Middle Eastern food or as they think. And, you know, they're just serving hummus with toppings and or opening a shop that just serves hummus, which are all great ideas. And some of the food is delicious out there. What I get excited about is the concept from the perspective of a Middle Easterner who used to be an economist and now is a chef is this idea of uh, flavor per dollar. So if you think about the cuisine, you know, you can buy a lot of flavor per dollar because of the spice mixes, because of the olive oil that Laura was talking about, that, you know, hummus and uh, bread by itself is just the most comforting thing. But if you're having a lamb kebab, like with one skewer, you know, with 50 ounces of uh, product, I mean, excuse me, 50 grams of product or two ounces of product, you can basically have so much flavor that you'll be saturated. that You don't need an entire steak to sort of fulfill you, which is obviously, you know, a Western invention, having a giant piece of steak on a plate. Going back to these cultures and finding different ways of addressing dietary needs, I think will diversify the ways we solve the problem of putting food on the table. And I, I think the way that Middle Eastern food is getting celebrated so widely is a great trend. If you think about the geological, excuse me, the sustainability and environmental impact hummus, it's negligible compared to a piece of protein. What are those key flavors or dishes, you know, spices, the aromatics that are really characteristics from, you know, that region that we can describe as uh, maybe the former like uh, Ottoman Empire? Can you talk to us a little bit ab about this? Because it's very rich. Absolutely. I think it's, you know, I think it's very broad to talk about the Ottoman Empire, is, uh, specific dishes and spices. But, uh, you know, we get very excited about all of them. I think when you talk about the Ottoman Empire food, you talk about four seasons as well. So there's a lot of preservation, you know, because they have a really hot summer and also they have a really cold winter. And you have like fresh ingredients at the same time. You know, one of the key flavors and how I will describe the food by itself, you know, a lot of, for instance, when you go to Spain, you have the sofrito base. And when you go to Mexico, we use some spices and, you know, we use a lot of onions and, and garlic at the same time. In the Ottoman Empire food, you go to pepper paste. I think they use a lot of peppers. And, you know, they do the harvest for the peppers and, you know, there's even, you know, almost kind of a ritual when you get all the peppers and then you dry the peppers out and you get this amazing pepper paste that they use for the rest of the year. At the same time, you know, you have all the kebabs, you have the spices, you have the stuffed vegetables and they are crazy about the desserts and the sweets they love. Everything extremely sweet, so it can be preserved for, for the full year. You know, we were, we were just in Turkey and we had that experience where we had a baklava. And, you know, coming from the States and having a dessert so intense, 
it was a little bit overwhelming for the two of us, but you know, we still get very excited about all those ingredients. So what are the spices? You mentioned spices. What are like the key spices? And then you guys are doing, you know, are working as well, you know, with uh, spices producers and you're doing doing blends, correct? Yeah, yes. Uh, we have about 12 blends at the restaurant. I mean, the way I think about it is that, you know, there are a couple of uniting factors across the Mediterranean from Morocco to Cyprus, Lebanon, and, uh, you know, encompassing Italy, Spain, and southern France and Portugal and to Turkey. So one of the ways for us, uh, as far as identifying these key ingredients from the Ottoman Empire and the Eastern Mediterranean has not only been to sort of find the common denominators, but also to identify what differentiates us from the rest of the Mediterranean. Because, uh, you know, obviously culturally, Italy, Spain, and Southern France have a huge dominance on, you know, a lot of people's perception on Mediterranean flavors. So when you look east, so what, what is different? So I, we try to keep, for instance, rosemary out of our repertoire because it's so Italian. And that's replaced with immediately with oregano and thyme and all of the spice mixes that this oregano and thyme are in are just incredibly potent and uh, basically transform the ingredients. So we, like Laura said, we have a couple items in our repertoire. And I'm calling it repertoire, but we're really talking about a pantry, right? So you build a fundamental building blocks of your cuisine by identifying those key ingredients that are so important to you. And sumac, so you're, we're talking about sesame, we're talking about thyme, we're talking about Aleppo pepper, Urfa pepper. Urfa pepper is something we're both in love with. This is a raisin pepper that's similar to the ancho. A lot of folks who are in the food industry are very familiar with it. But, you know, until this incredibly smart Turkish uh, importer in the United States basically marketed it as Urfa and Aleppo pepper and Marash pepper, Nobody was really aware of those products and they're just, they've got so much potential. There's something called Kameli Suneli from uh, Georgia that we fell in love with. It's a floral aspects with, there's marigold flowers in there. There, uh, there is blue fenugreek. It's a milder fenugreek. There is coriander in the spice mix. So you have a fruity uh, spice, you have an earthy spice and you have a floral spice. And to me, just the idea of combining those three ingredients is amazing. One of the other spices I would like to talk about, uh, you know, like Sayed talked, it's Canelli Suneli. Canelli Suneli is actually a spice mix from Georgia. And Georgia is the only country that uses marigold flowers as a part of their cuisine. And, you know, the reason why I get very excited about it is because we use marigold flowers in Mexico for rituals and for ceremonies. And you see it on the streets. And, you know, it was very interesting to me to see they actually dry the flower. And they, they just grind it and they use it in the soups. They use it in the sauces. I'm in love with it. And the other spice mix that I think we appreciate, it's fenugreek. And there's a type of fenugreek that I love. It's called blue fenugreek. It's a milder fenugreek. And in the, like I said, it's the same. It's absolutely stunning. You get the, the notes of the fenugreek, but a little bit toned down. So you can use a little bit more of it and it just goes great with any sauce. Any sauce for what, what kind of, of food then? We are using it right now for a sauce that's called ajika. Ajika is a, a sauce from Georgia and the base is peppers and walnuts. So you get deep flavors from the uh, marigold powder and from the fenugreek 
And that's, you know, the mix is called Canelli Sunelli. We use a little bit of pomegranate molasses. We use two different types of pepper paste and we use walnuts. So it's, it's amazing. So when you have all of this at your disposal, and then we are talking about, you know, tradition here, obviously, you know, with the dishes, uh, you know, coming from that area. Uh, I'm curious about how do you approach your creative process? Because the inspiration comes from, you know, from the region and the produce that you have. But wh what's the spin, you know, that uh, from a creativity standpoint? So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about how do you approach this? When we're talking about serving uh, 4,000 guests out of a kitchen in a city like San Francisco, uh, we're really putting a target of what we want to achieve in front of us. And build, we're building the process around it. In the context of fine dining, we were a lot less limited at the restaurants we're working because we could throw, throw three people at a dish and have them spend four or five minutes on average on a single plate. But we don't have that luxury in an environment where we're trying to focus on value. So the creativity comes in a lot of different ways. So a lot of the focus of our creativity, creativity has been on basically providing that value Laura has alluded to in the beginning of the interview. So uh, it's it's a process improvement. Obviously, there's a lot of flavor creativity. So every single kebab on our menu has its own sauce, its own spice mix. The flatbreads are very similar to a pizza eating experience, but none of the flatbreads have a pizza-like flavor profile. They're all very unique. The sandwiches are each hyper-designed to a T. Like We haven't changed a single bit about every one of them. And um, it's, it's the same goes to our, you know, the texture of our hummus. Uh, you know, sometimes creativity means holding back on the different aspects of an item, like, you know, the garlic content or whether you're adding flavorings to a hummus to just showcase how beautiful and smooth and light a hummus can be to be able to highlight that one thing that matters the most. So curtailing on creativity is sometimes... In, in this example, the most important thing as well. So we use creativity with side of caution in, in that way. You know, one of the, the fun parts for, of this process is that we are challenged all the time. Just like Sayad said, we have a couple of points or targets that we have whenever we're creating a dish. If, you know, it has to be seasonal. It has to be, of course, Middle Eastern. It has to be easy to execute at, at the same time. And if it doesn't meet all all these three angles, we're just not going to put it on the menu. We're not even thinking about creating a dish. So it's been it's been a fun process. You know, we we need to make it work for the kitchen. We need to work, make it work, of course, for the clients. We still are creative and, and we are still using our culinary skills. Well, if we take one of uh, the dish that I've tasted when I was at uh, your restaurant, which was fascinating to me. And I, I really love that dish, which is the mint yogurt broth that you serve. So explain a little bit what it is first. And then, you know, what is like the traditional aspect, you know, coming from that region? And what is like the creativity aspect that you guys have put together in that dish? So this is a dish that is... That has not permeated through the United States or even Europe because it is not just endemic, but it's also hard to do and scale. 
one of the things that's very special about it, it's like something that you would eat at home. You wouldn't even see it in restaurants because it has to be sort of composed a la minute, as we say. There is a liaison, uh, you know, coming from French culinary terms, uh, it involves an egg yolk and the tempering of the egg yolk and uh, bringing it up to temperature in a very careful way. Because yogurt breaks to stabilize the yogurt, you have to go into the process with a lot of care. So we basically found a way to create this super rich flavored broth that has yogurt in it and mainly spiced with dry mint, which is not a spice that we mentioned before. But it's something that we get really excited about. And it creates a tart, creamy experience that is comforting at the same time as being light. So that's comfort and lightness is something that you only get from yogurt in the world of dairy products. And it's it's one of my favorite things about it. Traditionally, it's made with you know a beef broth. We make it with a beef and lamb broth and cook it with short ribs. One of the most unique dishes that we serve on the menu. It's one of those things that is a, you know, a family, I wouldn't say a family recipe, but a family experience. This is the flavor that I have in my head that Laura and I basically developed together to get to an optimum point that we appreciate. And what what's fascinating to me is obviously a lot of folks in our kitchen are immigrants and, you know, folks who've never tasted this food, but it's, just been really interesting to see them cook it day in and out to our specifications. And we're just really proud. That's a fantastic dish, I have to say. Oh, thank like, you. I mean, congratulations. It, they had amazed me. So uh, do you think that, um, you know, there's still like flavors, ingredients or spices coming from that region that could be plentiful of that are not you know, yet celebrated. There's a lot of things still to discover. Would you consider things that we're highlighting in our cuisine that, you know, nobody else is looking at uh, as ingredients that are underutilized? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking this. So I'm thinking even like, you know, from from the Ottoman, you know, uh, former Ottoman Empire, there's some a great other, you know, uh, ingredients or flavors or spices that uh, you guys are maybe looking at and say, hey, you know, that's other things that we need to explore and experiment with. I would jump in any time, but there are so many endemic cultures that haven't made it outside of their regions that are blessed with a lot of super unique ingredients. So for instance, we were in Armenia and uh, they have one of the most striking and easily overlooked ingredients when you go to the market. If you don't know uh, how to speak Armenian, it's just very elusive is Aveluk. This is mountain sorrel and they beat it into, you know, long uh, strings and uh, they weave it into long strings and they basically tie it into a circle. You could, you could argue that it's, it's a crown on an accessory for a dress or something. It's that beautiful, but it is a, it is an herb that basically in its drying process, because it's being tied into such a thick uh, knot, if you will, that it's fermenting. Uh, I mean, it tastes funky at the end of the day, but it's this predominant flavor is sorrel flavor, but it's incredibly earthy. And you braise it, you pickle it, you put it into soups, and it just, you know, th- th- one of the things with soups is that you need hours of flavor development, right, to be able to get that deep, uh, you know, chicken stock or bone broth uh, flavor. But this is like one of those things that can, um, like kelp, for instance, does the same thing to dishes, dry kelp combo uh it, so it's one of those ingredients that 
captures so much flavor over its over its lifetime that by the time you add it to the soup, you don't have to add any other ingredients to it. So it's that unique of an ingredient, and um, I don't think I mean you mentioned supply, just you alluded to it at least. I don't know if this is plentiful in supply. I don't even know what the supply chain looks like for it, but it was an incredible ingredient that we were just blown away by. I know that's one ingredient that I talked about for a couple of minutes, but it's there's just so many of these examples, like wild pistachios. Yeah, I know, absolutely. And also, you know, a lot of different techniques that we haven't even explored. There are like di- different concepts as well. Every We just came back from, you know, we took a couple of days off and we went to Armenia and we went to Istanbul. Just, just in Istanbul, every time we go, we just get amazed of the ingredients. There is something new there, like, you know, the whole process of, you know, eating cheeses and, you know, there is like a different type of cheese and like different process for a different type of cheeses. There's this cheese that's amazing that we also use here at the restaurant that's called Tulum. Halloumi we actually make, but I'm talking about another one. And I think, I think it's like the bar, the bar, Parmesan of the Middle East that's called Tulum. Uh, so these uh, sheep's milk cheese that's aged in the sheep's skin. So you, you get all these like flavors from the sheep and literally taste like if you were eating or inside the sheep. They serve it and they mix it with walnuts. They mix it with nigella seeds, just that cheese by itself. And, you know, there's like all this marmalade. And yeah, we just are always so excited about new ingredients. And whenever we go or whenever we're doing it a trip or we want to explore, of course, and uh, we always find something new. There's so much like potential in the region and Noosh only features a limited version of these dishes and ideas and things that we're ever so excited to create more and explore more and share the wealth of the region and the creativity of the region that has stayed endemic way too long um, with the rest of the world too, you know. I was just thinking that, uh, you know, that's the part of the world that I had never been to. I just, you know went into like the border of Turkey, uh, you know, once. And I'm saying that, you know, if you need someone to carry your luggage <laughs> next time you go, <laughs> you just, just like send me a text. <laughs> I mean, the, the number of trips we'll do is hopefully going to increase. And we want to do um, more for Turkey with Turkey, as well as the rest of the region, Armenia too. So I, I want to go back now a little bit on the approach and how you went into the business because I think it's fascinating. I haven't read too much other people doing a lot of this and I think it could be interesting for you know people that are in culinary school where you know you, you used to be um, you know several years back but you had a specific approach before creating you know your own business so you did a stage almost like a tour <laughs> Because I, I read that, that, you know, you've been to like, I don't know how many cities, like 12 cities and you focus on Michelin star restaurants, like 14 Michelin stars. So I'm curious, let's say, first of all, why, why staging? You know, this is so much fun to tell, you know, whenever we're meeting somebody and he, one of the, the first questions that we always get and people ask is, so where do you guys go for, for your honeymoon? And, you know, we said, okay, we worked <laughs> for our honeymoon. It wasn't easy for sure, but Saya and I had a history of working in really good restaurants. We work for the best restaurants in the country and of course, working for these restaurants. And I'll, I'll be very honest. And 
all your audience knows as well, you know, we don't get paid much. And uh, one of the reasons that we decided to go Stashies was because we wanted to try. We wanted to experience. We wanted to learn. The only way that you can do it being a cook is by working. So we just decided to go and work. We wanted to experience and get to try all these expensive restaurants and ideas and, you know, get involved in, in something that we have never seen before. And the only way to do it was traveling and going and basically knocking at doors and going inside these restaurants and working for them. So how do you establish your list? How do you, you make that list and pick and choose, you know, uh, the restaurant? Appetites, really. Like, what do we want to eat? So what, is, what, what looks good? What's on the way? And who has the best reputation? And also, who do we know? It was very organic. Sometimes we decided on the next city's restaurants a week out, but sometimes it took a lot of months of planning. Okay. So who do you contact? I mean, I'm thinking about maybe some students that are listening to the podcast and say, mm, that's a great idea. How do I do that? <laughs> you know, we had a really great relationship with the uh, Culinary Institute of America then. And also, like I mentioned, we work in, in great restaurants. We had a, a good resume. And you know, working in these restaurants, always like the restaurants want to help each other. The restaurants, you know, cooks want to help the community. And, and I think whenever you go to a restaurant and you mention you're a chef or a cook, they take care of you. They understand what you've been through. It was just basically knocking at doors and say, hey, uh, you know, I work in this restaurant. I've been involved in these restaurants. And I also am writing. We were writing for a blog for the Culinary Institute of America. And we were writing about the experience and everybody was so nice and open and, and, you know, they let us be in their kitchens. I would say, you know, everybody had needs to find their unique angle, right? So we, you want to provide with just like the pot perspective of hospitality. You want to create value in every interaction with you have with anyone that comes along your way. If you're thinking about an institution that, you know, such as, let's say, August in New Orleans. So what can I give to these folks besides just my eight hours of work to improve upon their reputation? So that's the angle that we found uh, with that thought process by writing on the Culinary Institute of Amer uh, America's magazine, like alumni magazine. We basically provided them with an audience of potential employees that was a very attractive proposal to a lot of these institutions that struggle day in and day out to find the right employee pool. Everybody has to find their right angle. Maybe it's somebody has a blog of, we also had a fairly effective Instagram account or have, have an effective. So you have to build all aspects of your, what you're offering to the world in order to be able to, uh, make a compelling case. I think that's one of the hardest things about being a chef in that you have to work all aspects of your life. Be effective. If you are thinking about not only the cooking aspect, but maybe more like the business aspects of things. So if there's any key learnings that you have discovered at a restaurant where you were doing the stages. I mean, we're scratching the surface. We're really talking about a day or two um, stints at different restaurants. I think I'm always, obviously studied economics, but then switched to engineering, I always get impressed by process. Uh, it's one thing to be able to do one eggplant chip at a time for 30 people, but it's another thing to do 
that for 300 people perfectly every evening. And Zaytinia was one of the most impressive restaurants to me just because of the wealth and breadth of cuisine that were put, they were putting into the restaurant and how well things were executed and how big a scale it was running at. I, I'm just, after La Bernadette, I've just been so impressed by, you know, processed restaurants that I'm really excited about Zaytinia specifically. What do you I think? Yeah, that was a great restaurant. But I think going back to your, to your question, what we learned, it was, I think basically that we were very excited about building our own concept. I think this led to, to a point where we said, okay, let's just start something right away. I mean, I don't want to say we have all the experience in the world, but we, you know, we have good experience. We have a good background and we wanted to try. And I think this is the biggest learning. It was that we were eager to start and, and that led us to start our concept right away. Trying to pick up your brain and thinking about, you know, the foodies that are listening, people like me, you know, who are listening to the podcast and say, what would be your suggestion? You know, how a home cook, a foodie like me can prepare, you know, something which is inspired from the side of the Mediterranean and what, what should they make and what unique spin would you suggest, you know, for, you know, for them? Absolutely. I think. People that want to try Eastern Mediterranean food or they want to start cooking, I think uh, the right angle is to go and explore spices to begin with. I think spices play a huge role with the cuisine. When you understand the spices and how they interact within each other, you can create something amazing. I think that'll be the right angle. The, the, the other thing, you know, if you want to create like a special dish, of course, you know, exploring the the pantry of the Eastern Mediterranean or the Ottoman Empire and just using them in a way that fits in uh, with your city or your area where you live in. I think, uh, you know, we are lucky to live in California and we are lucky to, to have our restaurant in San Francisco where we can use amazing ingredients that you can find all, all year round in the uh, Mediterranean. And also they are very seasonal. For instance, you know, the Mediterranean has amazing tomatoes. In California, we have the, like one of the best tomatoes in the world. And, uh, you know, when we, you use the right ingredient with the right techniques as well. For instance, if you want to do a dish that's Eastern Mediterranean or Turkish, uh, we go for stuffing. I will go for like stuffing vegetables. You know, they use it and like whenever you're having a meal, a breakfast, dinner, lunch, you'll find in the messes, messes are like the small dishes or appetizers. You will always find a stuffed vegetable. So this is something that you cannot miss. Also, you know, using uh, the grilling and using all these cooking techniques, grilling kebabs and grilling fish and use, using the pure ingredients by itself. I think this is something that you can just go ahead and execute. If I make um you know a grill and then if I want to make a kebab, so what what kind of spices should I use you know together with it in order to have this you know Middle Eastern or you know um I think one of the most fundamental uh, Middle Eastern flavor experiences is burnt oregano. So when a meat is marinated with a little bit of onion, oregano, and then chili. And then you throw it on the grill, and that oregano on the crust of the meat burns. This is very specific. 
But every time you eat a chicken kebab at my grandmother's home, you would always taste that burnt oregano that, you know, was part of the grill marks on, on the chicken. And that's one of, to me, that is one of the most fundamental flavors. So we're, we're talking about, you know, the flakes of oregano. I'm not talking about powder or anything like that. Even if you take a piece of T-bone steak and put oregano on both sides in addition to your salt. And I, I just do put away the black pepper just to, to put it in there because it's a uh, homogenizing spice and everything tastes the same if you use black pepper too much. So I would say cook a steak with just oregano and salt and see what that tastes like. Yeah, I would like to finish with uh, a series of rapid fire questions. So you're talking about learning how to blend the spices and work together. Is there a specific cookbook that you can recommend for people to get this inspiration around spices from uh, Middle Eastern? One of my favorite books is Istanbul and Beyond. The other one is My Turkish Cuisine. I think it's Turkish, My Turkish Cuisine. The Black Sea is another one that I absolutely love. I mean, the homage aspect of a lot of these books, it's just, it's not respectful enough towards spices. And I, I think that tells me to one day write a, a great spice book, you know, talking about, but I get a little bit academic about these things. You know, how do you cook a spice? How do you best extract its flavor? You know, what kind of spice flavors are oil soluble? Which ones are acid soluble? So, no, nobody really touches any of these things. I mean, they, even for the home cook, they just scratch the surface. If you were to pick up a, you know, a McCormick bottle of spice that tells you the same information, you do you really need one more book on your bookshelf. So I get frustrated with publishing companies from a distance. I don't know if they're the ones blocking it, but I think there's definitely a need for a better spice book. So can you give me three dishes that you cannot live without cooking or eating? I cannot live without Laura's black fidua. She's made a, she makes a squid ink fidua that crisps on the bottom. And, and I, I just get really excited about it. It's a very Spanish dish, but it's something that either black rice or black fidua is something that I really enjoy. There's one dish that my mom makes. It's a burek, which is a stuffed filo dough pastry. It, it basically gets ground meat, meat inside uh, that's been been refried before with um, onions and aromatics and everything. And then um, it gets super crispy. And then you serve it with garlic, yogurt, and tomato sauce. It's very comforting. And it's one of my favorite things in the world. And I think the third thing, I, I'll say a pilaf. And, I, I, and it's a very broad term for me. I love sushi rice just as much as I love my mom's rice just as i might as much as i love laura's tomato rice and it's just i think a good rice dish that's unctuous like a biryani or a tardik from iran or a gapama from armenia is always just some of the most comforting food in the world i will say i mean i cannot live without tacos because i'm mexican so i will i absolutely love tacos that you know i cannot live without tacos but cooking I think one of the most fascinating techniques that I learned in exploring Turkish food or Middle Eastern food is a technique that's called seytiniala. It's actually a dish. It's basically when you cook any vegetable or or any ingredient in olive oil. 
So what you do is you are basically poaching the ingredients in olive oil. So you have this experience of, for instance, eating artichokes poached in olive oil. And it's uh, just absolutely amazing. I think it just intensifies all the flavors. I don't know. I think my third one, I, I cannot think of something that Sayad specifically makes for me. And I think I love absolutely aye, aye, everything aye, aye, that aye. he makes. All his, uh, you know, he will make like eggplant stews or uh, he he loves to make pilafs. And I love Sayad's pilafs. I like the most amazing pilafs. I think he was called <laughs> the um, Rice that. Whisper Rice at uh, Lebanon then. And this <laughs> 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 uh, so, he was the Rice, Rice Whisper. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I love that. But but I think I also love simple ingredients cooked the right way. Uh, and uh, I love grilled vegetables. I love grilled fish and uh, just grilled meats. I think just simple good food. That's what I appreciate the most. Yes. Good. So um, I, I want to read to thank you both for your time. We have been talking here for uh, a little bit more than an hour, believe oh, it or it? not. And, um, and uh, thank you so much for accepting to be uh, both of you uh, guests you know on my podcast flavors unknown thank you i really appreciate it well thank you so much for your time we we love being part of this thank you if you liked this episode with chefs sayat and laura azilmas from noosh please share it with friends and ask them to subscribe to flavors unknown on apple podcasts or other phone podcast apps as I always welcome new listeners to the show. If you are interested about some of the specifics that were mentioned by those two chefs from Noosh, you will find all the details on the show notes page at flavorsunknown.com. In two weeks, I will have a special guest. He's not a chef. He's not a bartender. His name is Flavien Desoblin, and he's the owner of the Brandy Library in Copper and Oak in Manhattan. He's an expert in the world of spirits. So we are going to talk a lot about alcohol uh, in two weeks, and especially we will focus on bourbon. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.